hello and welcome to What Do Buildings Do All Day, a podcast about people who live their lives in the company of buildings. I'm Emmett Scanlon and in this episode I speak to Derek Poppinger, who is a property developer and one half of MM Capital, the developers who are owners of the Phippsburg Shopping Centre site on the north side of Dublin City. We hear a lot about developers on the radio, in the paper, and have for decades now, and they are very simply often portrayed as profiteers, individuals who are out to exploit the city and citizens for profit, and individuals who have the ear of planners of government and have undue influence on how policy and planning decisions are made right across the country. I invited Derek to come on the podcast because he and his company have spent five years trying to make something happen on a complex and challenging development site which is full of many restrictions. As you will hear, the Phibsborough site is a case study in complexity. And to be honest, I respect the effort and the level of local engagement that has occurred by the company during that time. But last year, before the ministerial ban on co-living, MM Capital applied for permission to put co-living on the site, perhaps the most reviled form of domestic typology in the history of the state, although none yet actually exists. Why did this happen? Why did they do it? It occurred to me that we've not yet heard from a developer explain why they think co-living is something they consider good for domestic life. If this is a podcast about people who live their lives in the company of buildings, it seemed appropriate to speak to Derek who makes buildings day in day out and put some of the questions and concerns people have about co-living in Ireland directly to him. We start directly when I ask Derek to clarify the differences between builders and developers, terms often conflated in Ireland. Well, just to be really simple about it for a second, because obviously it's complex territory. There's a developer and then there's like a contractor and, and there's builders. And so a developer is what compared to a contractor? You're someone who, who serves a site, wants to f- purchase it, assemble a team around it, develop it, ultimately, I guess, sell it, trade it. Um, and contractor might be someone who gets employed by a third party or a client or a commissioner to, to build something and then move on to another you want to talk a little bit about the process of of development and any size that you might take and how that works and how you how you assemble a, a team around you yeah sure i mean we that's spot on emmett like we are i guess the value chain in terms of any development really i guess could be split into three areas there the starting point clearly is the land or the real estate in the first instance and um, the second point as you mentioned is the contractors which ordinarily are the builders uh, so they are the individuals who obviously go and, and do whatever works are required and then I guess the developers at the, the tail end of that insofar as it's probably at the the area whereby those elements meet capital if that makes sense so i.e that the standard process that we would go through and I think most developers will go through is that in the first instance land of some description is put onto the market Uh, That in turn allows us to start reviewing, analyzing, digesting what we're going to do with that. Uh, Through that process, we would come up with some form of business plan. So, you know, ordinarily, if it's development, it is what sort of massing design can we get on the site? What type of rents do we assume or think that would be potentially attainable? What type of construction costs clearly are going to take in in terms of to get it to, to, to actually operation? And then in turn, we then need to go and uh, partner with the capital partner to attain the capital to go and buy the site and then start to execute on that business plan. So I think in a way, it's not that complicated if you digest it back to just if you were to do your own house or something along those lines. 
uh, because I mean, you know, fundamentally, it literally is the same process. Mm. But I think at times, certainly in terms of the debate or the narrative, all of these areas get sort of consumed or subsumed by this developer. And the reality is, is that most firms are, are distinct in those zones. Um, it's not impossible. And, and historically, you have had a little bit more of contractor developers. So these were people back to the point in terms of how do you become a developer? A lot of the time, actually, it's, it's contractors, it's builders who start out, they start doing smaller jobs. And then uh, over time, potentially, they decide to then jump the other side of the fence. Um, th that's not that common, I would say, because there's different challenges in both sec segments. I mean, if you're a contractor, your challenge clearly is managing a larger workforce. It's a pipeline. You're exposed to different risks and type of, of opportunities. Equally, if you're a developer, there's a separate set of challenges there as well. Equally on the land side, I mean, the land side is the one whereby, you know, that's could pick your any sort of area or suggestion uh, there's not really a massive land owning bodies in in ireland as such but ultimately obviously that's where this whole process starts because fundamentally there has to be some form of new land or development in order to kick off that process and you i mean it says i've just been obviously doing my little bit of research it says on your website that um just that awful question. I, I've made that website. It's not that it's not okay. impressive. So it says to, you, it says that it. you guys work backwards from user requirements, right? When you're in, when yeah. you're kind of developing a site. So let's take an example of making a site suitable for housing um, or any development. I mean, that obviously requires you to work with specialists who would understand user requirements, such as architects. And it does strike me that your business or your group or you are are interested in design in 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 its own sake. Is that fair to say? And how how have you deliberately and purposely sought out kind of particular kinds of architects or kind of design cultures or identities for the work that you're doing? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe the best place to start that is actually from when we started the firm, because I mean, I, as I said, I started this from a legal finance background. So I was completely clueless about the whole process around how, you know, a building is designed and brought forward. And if I'm honest, I have to say, I was really clueless around the role of an architect, because I mean, I, I sort of just, lazily thought an architect did up some drawings and that sort of was the sum total of it and then mm. it goes on from there and um, I think what what's the reality of being a developer is that you are are absolutely dependent on the quality of team around you and in fact why I really actually enjoy the job and I've learned to lo love the job is because of that process. I mean, you're incredibly fortunate to be able to bring together, you know, the, the really good uh, professionals across multiple disciplines in order to effectively create the design and the idea and the business plan to bring it forward. And again, what I, what I laugh at often is the fact that it's perceived as, the, you know, developers who are sort of leading this, whereas the reality of it is, is we try to keep out of their way as best as we can because I mean it, it that is the privilege of this job like the, the, to, to search search out in the first instance good architects good planning consultants but more importantly or in addition to that then of course the, the cross-discipline nature around that so good structural engineers mechanical engineers and then to build that team and be able to sort of operate with the team with confidence because the other aspect about the job is that there's clearly a massive amount of risk in any on all areas you're going through so you need to build up a rapport with that team that allows you know everyone's ideas to be challenged to be tested to have a sort of environment where people are free to actually give their opinions because at times it is it's difficult potentially if you're an architect in the sense of you are essentially 
you know, reliant on the developer's whim in terms of payment. So at times, if you're working potentially with someone who's maybe volatile or sensitive to criticism or those sort of things, your instinct potentially is then to, to not talk or to, to sort of, you know, go along. And really, I think that leads to sort of bad outcomes. And so far as a big area of, again, learning, but definitely something which we prioritize is trying to create an environment where all of those professionals have the freedom to actually go and do their job. Now, in terms of, in the question of how do we think about that process and design, like one of the, one of the key aspects and realizations to me on design, I think, is the fact that, or what I'm most more impressed by in design, you know, my starting point from this was an aesthetic building, you know, something that was nice to look at. And, and obviously that's still highly relevant but at the same time, what impresses me way more is the sort of the, um, the efficiency of design and understanding the challenges of what an architect has to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because in a way, it's very easy to just an architect to come and do their dream projects, right? Like that's, you could do that all day long. The reality of that is it will never be built because unfortunately how this process more often than not works is the fact that back to the starting point of land, when we are bidding on a site, we are bidding against, you know, three, four, five different teams, presumably doing the identical process that we're doing. And therefore the sort of the conflict or the combination of design effectiveness, construction efficiency, as well as commercial outcome are integral across that whole process. And, you know, architects clearly are, are heavily involved in that as well, because their challenge really is to ensure that the latter two points are deliverable while still being able to deliver something that is impressive and of quality, if that makes sense. It does. But I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm not saying you're saying this, but I guess the the the, the notion or the, the kind of trope that architects are only interested in the ideas and not interested in the the practical or the financial or aren't willing to compromise in order to achieve some vision and that you know economics or other realities might challenge that to the point of i don't know trauma or something is as much of a cliche as saying that you're a money grabbing hungry man who is not interested in design at all and just wants to make things efficient and, and banal and cheap right so i mean surely you've learned you know there's there's some compromise i mean have there been scenarios where you have very specific question maybe but where you have kind of accepted design decisions or advancement of kind of quality in design instead of kind of driving an economic line at certain points in the discussion i mean how does that negotiation work because the perception again we're talking very general kind of tropes or perceptions here is that the bottom line is the bottom line for a reason and that at all costs it's about money and it's never about sure i mean look there's probably three points you mentioned there the first yeah. the first of which is the the architect's role in their view and like, to be honest, the, the, the good architects that we work with have that combination because essentially for the project to be built, they cannot divorce themselves from it. And, and that's actually why, like to the point I made at the outset in terms of, you know, the architect is really the quarterback of the whole process. And I mean, you know, good architects will, will know as much about costs on site, structural elements around it, because it's the whole feedback loop of being able to design something that then is deliverable around it. Now, look, is there a tension between really designing something spectacular versus a commercial outcome? Well, well, there there is, but it's not necessarily in the way that, that people think about it, right? It's not like, you know, we come to a project and sit down and then start smashing the table and say, cut everything and do everything. The reality is the starting point of the bidding if that makes sense, right? Yeah. So if you took, if we were, we, it's competitive more, pretty much everything we've bought has been on market, open market process. So therefore, if we bring forward a project that isn't 
commercially viable or is marginally you know more expensive design less massing something along those lines the probability is we will just lose the bid and and therefore there's a sort of there is a constant tension there between needing to ensure that you are as competitive as can be to start the project and then bring it forward. Now, the other aspects, I think once you're, when, that's where, like, and I'm sure we might touch on this in terms of the design, like that's where ultimately a developer's role more often than not is to maximize the massing of a site, which does, I think, lead to times quite boring design. And I think certainly in terms of the architecture that I've, now that I'm probably a little bit more knowledgeable on it, you know, I don't look at a lot of architecture in, in Dublin, unfortunately, and think it's particularly inspiring or spectacular. And that's not because we don't have good architects. That's because of the system that we're all working under, um, i.e. whereby, you know, stuff like heights and those elements, it's all about maximizing massing, but therefore that leads to a lot of square buildings because you can see exactly how that process works. Uh, to win the bid, we need to maximize the massing. To maximize the massing, it leads to essentially just squares or whatever it may be to maximize the heights. And therefore, the design elements of it are more around, call it the facade treatment, or, you know, it's a lot less um, creative than it could be because of the sort of the system we're operating under. Okay, but who are you winning the bids from? Other developers. So you could argue, yeah, I mean, that's how the market works. So maybe, maybe all roads lead back to the developer in that sense. But, but that's the nature of how, you know, a market or competitive market works. And I mean, I think, I think the point of the distinction really there as well is that like design, it's not, it, these things aren't mutually exclusive. So long as you understand the starting point around which we're all trying to achieve, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like another huge aspect of design we find is obviously planners. You know, again, it's back to the role of developer in this. Like if you're bringing forward a scheme like planners have a huge role in any and all decisions, uh, obviously in terms of, you know, saying yes or no to whatever you bring forward. And uh, again, the design, you know, conversation that carries on between the planners and the architects are hugely significant. There's also a commercial reality of it as well. Like i.e., clearly if you are looking to rent uh, the building in some form or another at the end, or even sell the building in some form or the other, you know, aesthetically pleasing buildings, are inevitably going to be more valuable than non-aesthetically pleasing buildings. That makes sense. So they they aren't. I don't think about these things in terms of being completely binary, mutually exclusive. No, but no. I agree with that point you probably touched on there in the sense of ultimately the market will prioritize a commercial outcome aligned to massing. So the massing maximization is something that will always carry on. I think. So it's not quite. Let Let's scan to be try and make this really simple in a sense. If I'm going to buy a house and I, I know as an individual, I look at a house and the house is what it is. And okay, I might be buying it to maximize its potential in terms of my family or you know future, future life or whatever. But when you go to buy a site, that site's already owned usually by another developer who has asked you to come and speculate. By that, I mean, imagine how you're going to develop the site before you buy it. Is that Generally, with the process that happens, so you're not buying a naked site or an empty site, and some and and people just bid on the house. Are you speculating to understand what you can uh, develop there in order to understand how much it's going to cost you and then how much it's going to yield in the long term? You know, what's the, what happens in that in in that actual process when you're looking at a piece of ground with stuff yeah. on it? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely fair. I mean, look, the, the first point there in terms of who more often than not do we buy from, and um, it's not 
developer i mean you hear this word speculation a lot and i think people think well maybe i'm wrong in terms of when i hear speculation i think people think about this idea of the kind of you know the hoarding of land and strategically thinking it's going to go up by x or y and those sort of elements I, I don't see that at all and i've no idea at a practical level i have no idea who could do that it's an incredibly stupid investment decision if one were to do it uh, but it's something which you constantly hear yeah. if you're defining speculation around bringing forward a, a business plan and developing the land into something else then okay that's I, I would think about that a bit different, but I guess if, if speculation is aligned to risk, then that is something absolutely where this starts. So, but I mean, again, another thing you hear often is developer-led planning, which I really have no idea what that means. I mean, our, the process around how we would bring a project forward, I'm sure it's pretty similar to everyone. The starting point is what the zoning of the land is. So it's essentially, you're just, you're, you're um, developing to the framework that's already in place. The first and most important consideration is the zoning. The zoning definition is going to define what type of use can go on the site. So be it residential, uh, be it office, be it medical, be it whatever that is, it's all defined by the zoning. And, you know, yes, in theory, people can look to, to rezone land. But in reality, that takes years and is massively risky. So it's not really something, again, that we see, certainly in terms of city centre sites, it's not really something that's, that's hugely done, I would suggest. Um, the, next, the next aspect in terms of the process is then once you, let's just take, say it's a city centre site, you think there's a good demand or need for residential, the next design process effectively is to then to try to, to figure out what you think your planning permission would be, what you think will be allowable. So this is where the sort of the engagement with your team is absolutely vital at the outset. And it's probably the most sensitive aspect of the process, because if you get this wrong, it can essentially end very badly. Um, but what that means essentially is that it's, again, driven by the frameworks that are in place in terms of the, the, the planning process. So aspects of call it minimum heights, maximum heights, it's site orientation, uh, it's site location, uh, it's more technical elements like daylight sunlight analysis. So it's all of the, the sort of the elements that I'm sure you would understand, but at a practical level, it's just to speak to, okay, well, how, how, what's the area that I'm building in? I mean, clearly if I'm in a Georgian quarter, I'm not gonna get 20 stories because that would look completely bizarre and out of, out of kilter. If I'm developing beside a block of houses, you know, if I develop up, often I can infringe on back, you know, rights of light, all of those elements. So I think in a way it's probably pretty intuitive to people that they'd understand that maybe you can get more height than the docks versus not but it's the technical components around that really, which ties into then creating a design. And then through that design, we bring in the, you know, our quantity surveyors and construction team to sort of then assess how much it's gonna cost, if that makes sense. Mm. So you're the owner of Phipster Shopping Center right now, and one of Ireland's most notorious buildings, I would think for many reasons. Yeah. At least with an architecture, it's much discussed, and locally, as you know, it's much um, uh, discussed too in terms of its history and its future and its its role, I suppose, in the local community and also as a as a as a place of future life and occupation. When did you when did you buy that site? Uh, two thousand sixteen, I think it was. We saw, I think it was on the market in two thousand fifteen. 
around Christmas time from memory, or sorry, the bids were around Christmas time. So we started to work on this in September 15, I think it was. Um, and then it was, it went to the market. We, we won the, the bidding process. And then we finally closed it in June, closed on it in June 2016. Yeah. So, so it's been a long, already a long time with that, with that site um, in terms of your life and commitment to it. And um, it's complex site, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's definitely probably the most complex site we've been involved with to date. And, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, I guess the starting point of the complexity stems from the sort of the ownership uh, structure that was in place. I mean, it's sort of a bit bizarre in that it was, it's not a especially logical construction of a site, um, but it was a almost a hangover from the last cycle when um, various developers were attempting to essentially build a land bank around the area. And then this is how it sort of played out or, or fanned out. So I think the, the most unusual aspect of it is the orientation of it in the first instance. I think some of the additional complexities around it was the fact that the existing ownership structure was complicated further by virtue of uh, historical uh, ownership rights of, of you know groups like Tesco as well as then DCC had certain control rights on DailyMate. So um, that you know it was it, it is I should, I should say um, you know a lot of our decisions and drive and business plan were obviously influenced by that because unfortunately you don't have an absolute free reign to just go in and do what you want. So that's, yeah, that's where the, the journey started, shall we say. Yeah. And as part of that process, you spent, I mean, let's go, go back to this thing of uh, users um, that's on your website. <laughs> yeah. But if we, if we transcribe that to kind of everyone who will encounter that site, which is quite a lot of people over its time, you know, either going to match uh, in Daily Mount in Bohemians uh, or going to Tesco in the future or living there or whatever, you know, whatever else we'll be doing there. You've spent quite a long time in these five years talking, engaging with residents and interested parties in Fisber. How have you found that process? I mean, not specifically about the people you're dealing with, but just generally as part of, of, of engaging with the site and trying to turn one site into another thing and sustain its future in a way. Yeah, I mean, for, I, I can't comment for other. I mean, for us, it's it's absolutely vital because I mean, at the one of the aspects about our job, which you need to be mindful of, is that you are almost an, a, not an intruder, but you are a, a you know a, a new entrant into a neighborhood, and it, that is a, both a privilege as well as a responsibility. So I think, from our perspective, it, you know, we I don't a lot of how we view the world is that these things aren't mutually exclusive. I.e., what we're trying to achieve should be definitionally supported by the community in some form or another because if it's not we've got it terribly wrong and no one will, will definitionally use what we're trying to do right and um, often what we found to be the case is that um, like the engagement is brilliant because you can kind of understand what people's concerns fears are as well as as wants uh, on the site and particularly with this site there's an especially active community group which we, we found really, really, um, where we found the engagement with very beneficial. Now, I guess like that's, I wouldn't say we're lucky as such because there are other situations whereby you can encounter, you know, residents who for whatever reason just do not want any form of development. And again, our view to that is like, well, we should still engage because at the end of the day, if people understand what we're trying to achieve and you can communicate with respect to what their concerns and fears are, then more often than not, you will get to some form of middle ground. Now, take Fisborough, for instance. I mean, Fisborough, 
uh, we bought that as well, just when the, the local area plan uh, had collapsed, which at one point I think we were accused of being behind. Uh, but what was interesting about that was the fact that on the back of that, people were hugely fearful that there would be 50 stories and, and all sorts of rumors were circulating. So like more often than not, the fear of the unknown we find is actually worse than the reality. So uh, now that's not to say that everyone is jumping up and joy down what we were doing. I mean, I think that you alluded to the design. I mean, it's been a hugely interesting, uh, like just insight into design when, when the terror comes up for conversation, because yeah. I mean, it's virtually impossible to get a consensus around what people want done with that. I mean, some people want it blown up, uh, other people want it sort of covered or, or some form of treatment made of it. A lot of other people want it to be kept the same. I, I think the best idea I heard actually was to put up a, what's that, a Soviet, uh, what's the sign of signal or the, oh, yeah. yeah, up at the top of it. So like that, that's an interesting one because I mean, at the end of the day, like how do we design or come around to that? I mean, that's an interesting one where I actually quite like the terror. I think it could be designed pretty interestingly, particularly in terms of what, what we're trying to do. But even if, it, if we didn't have to cover up and meshing, we were constrained there to, to a degree in terms of some of the other constraints on sites of, of tenants being in place. So therefore, we couldn't necessarily do some of the treatment that ordinarily we would like to have been able to do. And I think that actually that will come. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's back to how the process works. The, the, the treatment of the tower, for instance, was in the local area plan. And therefore, from the planner's perspective, it was a pretty high priority. So, you know, in a situation whereby we may disagree with that or we would want some different design, the reality of it is, is that the planners ultimately will control it. And I hope and think that with the constraints of the site, again, it's, it's not perfect, but it will certainly be a huge improvement from what's there. And, and importantly, it's deliverable because, I mean, this site has been developed for, you know, God, 30, 40 years, given the complexity of it and everything around it, there's probably a reason that that's the case. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got, kind of got it all in a way in terms of like a, if you were to set it as an assignment uh, in a kind of a school of architecture for students to figure out with that structure, which is not protected, but yet has a, has a kind of a place in the kind of history of, of, you know, contemporary Irish architecture and is divisive in that regard. So some people, as you say, love it and some people hate it. And then you have the complexity of a football stadium that is also changing in mid, mid design. And then you, as you say, you have the city council who've got rights to, and then you've got a, an anchor tenant, which is, has to continue trading. And then you've got everyone who lives around it and it's a huge emotional attachment. It's a, it's a real confluence of um, emotion and, memory and ambition and passion, I suppose. And that's one of the things that has come out in the last five years, I think, in the area. When you originally yeah. put in a planning application, um, it was for student housing. And I seem to recall that was tricky enough in terms of that discussion because of all of the student housing that's happening in this part of the city or in that part of the city. And recently you changed that to co-living. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think the reaction to that was pretty negative and it's part of a wider reaction to that as a typology of living, which I know you have sure. some personal experience of living in, but obviously as a, let's say, apart from you, as a, as a business decision or as a development decision, you flipped from one or changed from one typology to another. What's behind that? Sure. I mean, well, I, I think the, the starting point of it is, is 
back to the start, right? So in when we, we developed the site originally, obviously co-living as typology wasn't available. So how did we, the, the first question, obviously to engage- You mean, it, sorry, was, you mean it wasn't available in legislation or acceptable, yeah. In 2018, so obviously when we started this, there wasn't that uh, allowable. Should we, it wasn't it wasn't there effectively. So the decision we had to make really was between uh, apartments or student accommodation. And again, it's back to how the the site is orientated in the design. The reality of apartments on the site just didn't work because essentially we had to attempt to develop out to the streetscape versus. And if you look at the towers and the pillars that we're doing, you can notice that there's a huge amount of north facing elements to it. So the only way we could develop standard apartments was actually only at the, the back of the site without any capability to bring forward to the street. Mm. That made sense. So the typology of student accommodation essentially allowed for the LAP to be better respected, as well as, again, to be frank, a little bit more massing to be attained on it. And hence, that's where the figure designs were brought forward. Now, of course, if we had more control of the site, then that might have been a bit different. But essentially, it's back to what we were trying to achieve, which was something that was developable, should we say. Um, the, the point on demand, I mean, it's funny, when we started on student accommodation, it's maybe pretty similar to co-living, like there was no, no one really had much of an objection or a view on it. But the, because the site was complex, we were probably in that initial planning process for the guts of a year and a half. And by the time we got to the end of that year and a half, I think people were a little bit more sort of focused on the degree and the supply of student accommodation that was being brought forward. And um, the reason we we changed the co-living then in the recent iteration, I mean, the starting point for this is that it's a, an amendment to the existing scheme. And the principal reason we needed to amend the planning per permission was because of an agreement we reached with Tesco to solve some of the servicing concerns that they had on the site. Now, because we were going to go through a planning process to do that we also then had to assess but the, the demand side and the risk of what we also had in place i.e student accommodation and therefore like we're big on co-living which i'm sure i can speak to or will speak to shortly uh, but for us it was just a classic case of supply and demand whereby over the convening years quite a lot of student accommodation supply had come into the market and obviously from a risk perspective because the biggest aspect of our job is to manage risk. Clearly, it, or, or at least from our view, it made more sense to try to uh, shift to co-living whereby there's a, a greater degree of demand, we feel, relative to student accommodation. Yeah, but, okay, uh, I'm not going to ask you to answer for every co-living scheme in the country or the kind of culture of it, but at the same time... I'd be happy to, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At the same time, one of the one of the there's a couple of things that have come up again and again about it. One is that it's transient, right? And I suppose there would be an anxiety in any kind of let's say community that what you're doing is promoting a kind of a transient culture where people arrive and depart, right? So that's one. And who who are this? Is there is there that community or group of people who want to live like this? Second one is the cost of it. So you know, there's a kind of um, an implied efficiency or economy in the fact that you have quite a small room with shared accommodation. But in fact, it appears that the rents of these rooms are going to be still quite high, right? Um, and maybe you could speak a little bit to that. And then I sure. guess the third one, maybe to think about, which is, I think, slightly trickier to answer, maybe is, is one of the things that was lambasted and placed against it, let's say, as a typology as well, is COVID and it's un unhealthy and dangerous now to uh, live like that. Sure. 
So, yeah, well, so there's, I think there are three points. The first are, of which yeah. Trans transient element of it and uh, look what i'd also like to do is maybe touch on why we are pursuing yeah. from our experience but I'll, do, I'll maybe touch on that post that so transient i mean i find that a really strange perspective if i'm honest because that the transient nature of the demand of real estate is not driven by the real estate it's driven by demand so i think the question is is there a demand for this type of real estate I, are there people who are single individuals who maybe don't have a huge support base, don't know people, come to a city for the first occasion, and therefore want to tie into this type of community in order to potentially then go on to a different form of accommodation and stay on for a period of time? Uh, like to my mind, the answer to that is 100%. Of course there is. And from my experience of living in co-living units, the nature of that transient element, transient is defined as, I think on average, people live for about 12 or 18 months in an accommodation, in a co-living accommodation, which is not that atypical if you sort of looked at it from a lot of other forms or variants of it. But it can be driven by any number of different scenarios. It can be driven by a house share of people who have split up because someone's, you know, got a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever it may be. And therefore the, the house is splitting up and some individual therefore needs to find somewhere to live for a period of time. I've lived with people like that. I've actually lived with people who are going through divorces in, in the same idea. So it's not really the real estate that's driving that demand. It's just the nature of how our society is developing and evolving. I mean, one of the major elements around co-living and also to be honest with you, any type of residential at the moment is that the greater degree of single uh, household formations and the later stage that's occurring so if you actually look at demand like that's the starting point for the conversation and it, to my mind in all of the debate the demand has never featured uh, heavily in it the second point i think you mentioned was the what was it the the um the value point was it yeah, it's to do with the cost of it and the, the the kind of um idea that you're not attaching spatially to too much space, therefore it might be cheaper than a three-bedroom detached house in Vibsborough or something. But actually the rent is going to be so high that it's also not it's also going to be prohibited. Sure. So I mean, where do you start with this point? I mean, you you hear this often, and I literally have been trying to understand where people's view come from this. You hear that that co-living is the highest use value in, in terms of the typology. OK, um, I think part of the problem that co-living and look, stepping back, right there, why is co-living in the way it's discussed and it's it's arisen? Um, there's massive frustration with housing. There's massive fr frustration with the affordability of housing. So, you know, wood from the tree stuff, it, it's absolutely understandable. And in a way, co-living is this sort of bogeyman in the room where any number of strawmans of evil are created around it is a sort of an incredibly astute and clever vehicle. If you actually look at the facts of co-living, right, um, there, one of the cognitive biases I find pretty interesting about it is that less than 1% of planning permissions since 2018 have been co-living. And that's in the SHD process. If you, if you looked at it from across all of the processes, it's even smaller than that. Okay. Now you may say, okay, this is a developer, he's biased around it, but this is the bit I don't understand insofar as the, the arguments against it are internally inconsistent. How on the one hand could this be the highest use value 
how could developers be greedy and at the same time there be such a small amount of these schemes be brought forward but is that to do with timing so if this only existed since 2018 we've had three years and so do you think that if there hadn't been a ban that this would be a growing phenomenon or is it um, is what you're saying that these cases less than one percent very little bit built if it is it if any have attracted enormous public attention and are in lieu of other discussions on housing or you know well let, let's there's just been, there's been a vacuum maybe yeah, I mean, look, it's just a value point in the first instance. So the one, the point being I'm making there is that it is not the highest use value of land. And we know this because we've been bidding on sites and consistently losing on sites to people who are developing other typologies. Okay, now, look, that's the point. Of may, people may say, well, that's a very obvious, you know, of course, it's the developer saying it. But if you look at the facts, the logic definitionally speaks to this right now that doesn't necessarily change the core question you asked which was around the actual value right and i think what what i'd like to touch on maybe a bit is actually the design intention and why co-living schemes are really quite appealing because the way people think about co-living is that they think about it as a micro apartment okay and they think about even from a design i, I remember reading one article by by an architect who, who effectively just uh, multiplied up the room spaces against a standard apartment as if that was actually the nature of what these buildings are. I mean, what, do you know what the area of a standard co-living room is in terms of the combination of factors? No, tell me. So in any of the schemes that we do, it's around 27 or 28 square meters, right? Now, yes, there is an intensification, but the point of co-living, it's community living, is the fact that your, your starting point of it is to recognize what that experience is currently and then trying to design a better typology to speak to it. I.e. what you do is you start by your standard apartment and then you reorientated the components of it. So yes, the room is one aspect of that process, but the other aspects are the living space and the kitchen space. And the point, the point I'm raising there is because that is why these buildings are hugely important and that's massively important to understand in terms of the pricing and the value of it so if you then take what the pricing and value is i don't disagree at all pretty much any and all rental product that is being built at the moment is incredibly expensive and um, like that's driven really by two things it's driven by the nature of the housing crisis that we're in and the lack of supply as well as the cost of delivery Right. But the way co-living is actually priced, it's, it's, believe it or not, an affordable option. And one of the reasons why certainly I lived in it when I did and also why we brought it, because the, the nature of what's offered is, is on an all inclusive nature. Right. So how it's ordinarily priced is that it has to be a discount against competing modern studios as one comparable. Right. But then also it has to be grounded against call it your classic co-living uh, unit currently, which is your house share or whatever it may be. Now, at the moment, all of this is too expensive. So take start from maybe the bottom there of your classic house share of maybe 800, 900 euros, whatever it may be. That's obviously a base rent and does include cost, does include all the elements of it. And is also, you know, you can take a view on the quality of it. If you look at what the co-living space is, essentially, is it's an all-inclusive rent. 
And therefore, the added value and what's provided is anywhere between 200 to 400 euros. Now, the distinction between what that added value is speaks to the amenity space, i.e. the buildings work so well because of the quality of the amenity space. I mean, I completely get if someone said, would you like to live in a room the size of a disabled car park? Of course, the framing of that question inevitably means that the answer to that is no. But if you ask the question saying, look, would you like to live in a building where you've got gyms, cinema rooms, co-working spaces, cafes, lounges, uh, wellness rooms, libraries, in addition to your bed space, the answer might be different. And that, that is absolutely vital to how these buildings work and the appeal of these buildings. Yeah. Um, now, the that's also why, to your third point on COVID, I mean, what's really interesting to me about all of this debate that occurred was none of these things are theoretical questions. Right. Like the amount of straw mans, you just have to laugh at what you hear, because the amount of straw mans that were posited around the evils that could occur while completely not bothering to see what actually is occurring and why these buildings are how these buildings are working, to my mind, is pretty extraordinary. Um, now, look, COVID is clearly a massive concern, and it's a massive area of, of sort of, you know, area we looked at in terms of, well, how do you design around that? What are the risks around it? I mean, obviously, initially, your viewpoint is, of course, well, God, there's going to be difficulties or challenges with that. The reality of co-living buildings abroad in COVID is that there was an increase of occupancy, because if you think about it from the perspective of the residents, you've got essentially two things going on. You've either, you're either self-isolating and bear in mind, a lot of these people definitionally do not have a big support base around them. Uh, so when you're self-isolating, you're you know, doing that in a building that's professionally managed with any type of assistant, be it food, medical, whatever it may be, as well as community around you has been a better experience, at least from what we've seen, versus doing in a one bedroom, but I had to isolate in, a, in, in my place for two weeks, which was incredibly depressing, I have to say, with no social activity, nothing around it, obviously. But if you think about the individual who's not self-isolating, you are able to then tie into the amenities of these buildings, as well as the community of it. So again, in a situation, particularly under the most stringent lockdown, you're able to have uh, still access and use the facilities and importantly the facilities are being managed to public health guidelines so does that eliminate the risk of course it doesn't but given the nature of how they're managed and the professional component of it and given the actual experience of what occurred you know we're certainly very comfortable still with the typology even in this environment what do you think of the ban I think the ban was probably inevitable. And I think it's also not that relevant. Like, I think the whole comical thing about co-living is back to that point I mentioned in terms of the cognitive bias. I mean, if you, I highly suspect if you ask someone on the street, how many uh, residential schemes are, like people's perception is that there's co-living everywhere, that all that's being built is co-living. I go back to the facts of that 1%. That's not the case. But of course, it's not as dramatic to advertise a 40 bedroom or 40 unit PRS building or apartment block. None of those things ultimately enter the media for whatever reason. So I think that it's not by any means, by the way, to say that co-living is a utopia. Like there are legitimate concerns with co-living, the most important one being oversupply. Because, I mean, co-living works incredibly well so long as it's targeted towards that niche of demand that we discussed. 
if it does, if it, if it started to, you know, if you had 10,000 or 15,000 of these beds, there are definitely legitimate concerns that there you would potentially get people living in them who ordinarily aren't doing it by choice or are the wrong sort of profile of person in terms of they don't, they don't actually like the idea of sharing and that sort of community focus. So like the, the original 2018 legislation had inbuilt protections against that. So I think in reality, there was never going to be thousands and thousands of these brought in. I think ultimately there'll be the guts of two thousands of them, of them all uh, brought in. And I think, you know, we, we assume that there would be the guts of maybe two to 3000 of these in terms of the demand side in the city in any case. Mm. Um, so I think the ban in some respects is very good because it essentially will control the risk or one of the major risks of co-living, which that there would be an oversupply of them, which would lead to the wrong type of people living in them or for, for the wrong reasons, I should say. I mean, the reason I, I started to live or we looked at co-living was it's that experience of being in living in shared housing. I mean, when I went to London in 2006, I lived in, um, I, I'm sure you have as well, but I've lived in any, every version virtually of shared living. I've lived with, in a house, a Georgian house, about, uh, with like eight people. I've lived in a Georgian house, which was a flat with, uh, which was a converted flat whereby the living room was a bed. Uh, both of those experiences were with strangers. I've lived with friends in two and three bedroom apartments. Then I've lived in student accommodation. And then I lived in actual purpose-built co-living units. And during that journey, I didn't, I wasn't like I was picking up this learning at the time, taking notes going, you know, this is good, that's bad or anything like that. But then when I came back to Ireland, one of the things which struck me was back to living at home. I mean, it was amazing the amount of my friends that were doing that and it was all cost driven. And the decision on the rental side was that you either chose to live in sort of out of town to get anything of quality of that was marginally affordable, or you decided to live where you wanted to live, which at that stage certainly for me was in central locations but then your decision was either to live in something of real crap quality or to have to pay a fortune to get into something that's sort of mildly good quality and um the whole that that's when the kind of not the eureka moment but it was also just more of saying like well i would i haven't i would 100 live in this having been in it and why isn't it there? So we did look at it before it came in. And then when it came in, we were pretty excited about it because like the, 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 the amino, I, maybe, I don't know if you think about it or from a design perspective, but that's the whole process which we undergo. I mean, the whole point of this or the starting point was what are the frustrations of house sharing with people, friends or, or strangers alike, right? What is it in a building, you know, that, it, that you would actually like to enjoy? You know, what is, yes, of course, there's this constant design tension between personal space versus community space, but it's back to the quality of the amenity space is just phenomenal. And it's the range of the, of the amenity space is phenomenal. And that's why the phrasing of the micro apartment to co-living, I think is hugely significant because if you think of it, yeah, our rooms are 18 square meters. So we have nine square meters of community amenity space. Like even against modern PRS blocks, there's 1.5 square meters, give or take, uh, per apartment, right? So the order of, like, I know this is all technical numbers, but you multiply that by two, 300, you begin to understand that this is massive, massive space, a massive space of quality. And like, if it were a micro apartment, 
like i.e. that it's just the room then it would be absolutely depressing and a lot of the criticism of it would be absolutely correct because that would be substandard accommodation it would be you know quasi-tenement uh, accommodation and all those elements that's also why supply is so or, or uh, supply and controlling supply is so important because if you even with all of that immunity space if you got someone who fundamentally didn't like to share wanted their privacy whatever it may be and were forced to live in it their experience of it may be that they do retrench into the room and therefore it is more just this solitary existence in a room which again would be substandard but the reality of it is is that it is i wouldn't say a perfect combination but it's a really brilliant combination between having quality personal autonomy added to huge amenity and an, a flexibility to essentially allow you to dip into the social aspects of shared living, which is true in any situation, while still retaining quality personal space and a, net, a degree of autonomy. Um, I mean, one of the big design decisions we made anyway was around the studio direction. Does that make sense? So as opposed to clusters. But if you, and I think if, we, if, I think if co-living was more clusters, people would probably understand it more because a cluster looks more like a traditional apartment, right? But actually, from an experience perspective, that's really suboptimal because all you're doing is replicate potentially some of the frustrations of existing co-living in a new purpose-built block. What do I mean to say by that? Essentially, if you're in a cluster topography, you're sharing with potentially four other strangers and therefore you're accepting the lottery of what that experience is like and that could be phenomenal but of course if you get the one roommate who is you know noisy tight and tidy all of those kind of elements you're essentially living with that individual in a really intense close environment you're not the, the if you shift to a studio it's not that you're eliminating that type of resonance i mean definitionally they're inevitably going to be in a building but the point being is that you're not therefore imposing that on the individual in the same fashion so therefore with the studio design you're able to have more flexibility with who you socialize with while still not necessarily having all of the downside of call it the mess bills whatever around it you know and uh anyway look i i could talk about it for way longer because i mean that's that's it's been the most enjoyable experience design experience we've had because like it is it's really been sort of building it up from first principles trying to relate on what's being done abroad but also then like i do genuinely think that the designs and co-living I, I can't speak to some of the other ones to be fair that was definitely overstating the mark but i, I i'd be fairly confident that our designs are even at a, a global level amongst the best that are currently around because like the planners have if anything, our amenity space is greater than what's abroad. We have uh, greater provision around it as well. So, and, and there's always that balance between getting the, yeah, getting that space right. So I'd be fairly, I'm pretty excited to say if we do get planning to see how it all plans out, because I do think it's going to be really exceptional spaces, you know. One of the consequences of that discussion maybe or one of the things that might be in the air is that the co-living debate is placed against public or social housing. So there is a there is a, a notion that like you, instead of building co-housing, should be building public housing or social housing. I think 
I think that's that's partly the thing. And I'm wondering about this question of social responsibility that's somehow leveled at you as an individual and as a business human and as someone making a living, let's say, um, to account for those wider questions in society, which may or may not be of interest. I mean, you may have no interest in making public housing, which I think is fine, maybe, if that's, you know, you, you don't, everybody doesn't have to do everything. But at the same time, that, that, that kind of confusion exists too. I mean, when Ona Brain was on the podcast, he said the people he'd call, one of the people he'd call in the morning if he wanted to build all of the public housing he intends to build, if he's ever in a position to do so, would be, you know, you and your colleagues. He'd be bringing developers who can build things and know how to turn sites around. And, you know, I'm, an, I'm, I'm elaborating there, but he did say that. So what, how do you respond to that kind of, must be a pressure or kind of some expectation that actually you're not taking care of society because you're building these kinds of co-living and actually what we really need is this kind of housing and why aren't you doing that? Yeah, I mean, like, to be honest with you, I find this whole idea pretty depressing because it's such an oversimplification of a complex problem. I mean, we, you either accept we're in a housing crisis or you don't, but if you accept the first premise, which I think we are, the reality is we need thousands of all types of typographies, absolutely social housing, absolutely student housing, absolutely nursing home, across a whole range of areas. So to oversimplify everything to social housing or affordable housing is exactly that. It's just a gross oversimplification of the problem that we're actually facing. Now, that's not to say the point that you're, you made or raise is relevant. I mean, it's back to the co-living point to a degree, because while it's sort of funny in terms of how it almost took on this evil, evil component, the reason and the core reason is that point of the frustration of the housing market, right? And if anyone is divorced from that, I mean, I didn't mention fully, but the reason I... I started or looked at co-living here i mean i when i moved back to dublin i i lived with my parents for two years and the reason i that was just to turn 30 that was not exactly the life trajectory that I, I saw myself on but even at that base level the reason i did that was because of the quality of accommodation that was available relative to the cost of it was just i just refused to live in it so there's there's pressures across everywhere in the market now if the, if the answer is how do you solve that then I think without being too simplistic, supply across every area ultimately will make an impact, right? Now, how do we think about what you're saying in terms of the social responsibility of development, right? Uh, do we have a difficulty or problem developing social housing? Absolutely not. I mean, if anything, from our lens at the moment, what you're finding is that social housing is if anything, will I wouldn't say fix, but is an area that has been hugely addressed and it's being addressed because resources are put against it. I mean, I think that the difficulty and the problem with the debate that I hear it is that it, to a degree, it's completely divorced from the realism of development. And the biggest elephant in the room is cost, right? So if the expectation of a developer is that we are a charity that will develop to lose money, then, you know, there, I, I'm certainly not rich enough by any means or anywhere close to it to be even start or think how that would play out. But the point I'm making is I don't see how that's practical. I don't see how that's a system that is going to be repeatable. I mean, it's back to that idea of ultimately when 
be it on the bank financing or the equity financing, if, if people define affordable housing at, say, I don't know, pick a number, 250,000, um, if you've been following the cost reports that have been coming out, which are emerging finally, because costs are the biggest difficulty in the market, it, it cost Dublin City Council, what was in the report, 430,000, I think it was, to develop uh, city centre apartments. And that's before land cost, before everything. So how do you square that circle between the cost of delivery being at that level versus the demand and expectation for being at the lower level? And that's the real, real difficulty in the market, real problem in the market. And it's not a, it's not a, a social responsibility as such. It's a problem that we all need to think about how to address. One of the questions I often get asked, and I'm not able to answer it, is why experts or people who either research this or write about this or act about politically about this or build this like you um, can't agree on how much it costs to build things. Why is that not, why does everybody have a slightly different version of events, do you think? And is that part of the problem that there doesn't seem to be consensus about some very, I mean, maybe those, may, economics is complex, I know that, and how you calculate things has many variables, but there does seem to be um, an inability to agree that cost is the factor. And if it is a factor, how much things actually cost and what bottom line we need to get back to to make it affordable to build and kind of release supply if, if that's building new or converging old. Um, how can I not be unpolite here? Um, look, I think, I think the idea that it's difficult to define this is fundamentally wrong. Like you just have to look across the city and look at the amount of cranes in the sky. I mean, any developer who doesn't know the cost of construction definitely will go out of business in the shortest window of time. So fundamental to your trade, right? That you'd know how, how much it costs. To it's, it's like, it's the core premise of what this job is. And the data available is like there's thousands of live examples where to the most granular level you can define the bricks the mortar the labor all of those elements around it so like with respect it's something whereby the I, the only reason i can conclude it is that people who are trying to obscure this fact are doing so because they're either um either if incompetent around it or they're purposely misleading and they're purposely misleading it because it suits some form of narrative and i know that may sound a bit harsh but like this is i i think this is vitally important because essentially like there's no magic wand to solve the housing crisis inverted commas and the unfortunate other reality i'd observe is that this is a problem that isn't going to there's, you know, it's not going to be fixed in the next year or two because it will take years and years and years of, of building. Now, there are, of course, decisions to be made and trade-offs to be made. But if you can't agree on some of the, the absolute basic facts, which should inform the direction of these travels, I find that pretty uh, depressing uh, or dangerous. I don't know, one of the two. Mm. So you have built housing before. Yeah. Yes. And do you ever go back and visit or do your architects go back and visit? Or I'm always very interested in this notion of return, particularly in your world where 
you, I mean, I think language sometimes is interesting and I know this is not a criticism, but you talk about units and real estate and your language is one of development. It's not, it's not one of, let's say my discipline architecture, although it is if we're in that kind of room, but also it's not about use or occupation or home or let's say those things, which I do think, you know, are latent in the kind of architectural choices you make as well. So what's your experience and understanding of how things have gone in the places that you've built and how they're being used and what life is like there? Yeah, I hope pretty well. I mean, I think the first question was, do you, do you go back and visit it? Like, of course, because you're living in the areas and the facilities. So definitionally, you 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 encounter the, the buildings on a constant basis in that respect. I mean, we don't we we haven't to date gone and done historical surveys or something like that in terms of trying to intrude into people's experience. But I think there could be merit in that because, I mean, obviously, ultimately, that's again hugely important and not much back to this idea that it's mutually exclusive you're trying to create that living experience and home that people actually you know want enjoy have experience with pleasure because again it's beneficial if uh, that's the perception of what an, an mn capital or a home is like and 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 all those elements around it and um, i think what i'm a, a bit or at times anyway um you do get these sort of questions where, you know, it's sort of like you're at, uh, there's a danger to it, should we say, in the sense of at times people talk of, as if it's your crowning signature, it's some sort of egotistical element of being able to look around. I mean, that element of the process, I, d I don't really have. I mean, what I enjoy more, and, and maybe I do speak in that sort of language, but it's more what I massively enjoy is the the, the journey of the, um, the the experience and the development to get to the end product. And certainly there's huge satisfaction at that point and there's huge satisfaction to see it alive and in, in operation, if that makes sense. But it's not something, I mean, maybe in 20 years, I'll, I'll think back in a lot more or go about it in a lot more nostalgic fashion. Um, but certainly in the short run, uh, I think it's more to ensure, I think that you've done a good job but without trying to breach into that sort of, you know, egotistical thing where you're doing a tour of tour of the day or something like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks to Derek for taking time out to talk about his life with buildings and being a developer, and I guess communicating clearly why he thinks co-living has a place on the menu of housing options. We are all free to make up our minds, of course, and I urge you to do so and to make as much noise as you possibly can locally and nationally and wherever else you can about the housing system in Ireland, which needs to be changed and changed utterly. I ask this every week and sorry if it is again annoying, but please, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it far and wide, it would be appreciated. It keeps us going and keeps people interested. You can also find details of the podcast and other information around them on the Twitter and Instagram page. Just search for What Buildings Do. The music you hear is by Sinead Vinnegan and it's played by the Dolmain String Quartet. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay safe. <laughs>